I was taking on lots and lots of big ideas, big projects, and people would follow me on these things just based off of charisma and excitement. And I had no clue how to actually bring them to fruition. And I thought that was the way you did it. I thought you you come up with this big thing and you go and you just figure it out along the way. What I saw in Influence Ecology was that there was a level of basic due diligence that I could do. If you can't see it, you can't say it. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully Thrive. Thomas K.R. Stovall is a subject matter expert on subject matter expertise. He is an author, a sought-after speaker and facilitator, a Google entrepreneur in residence, the founder of a patented enterprise microfeedback platform, and the creator of an organization that catalyzes growth for Black and Latinx entrepreneurs with almost 6,000 people in the membership across 16 countries. For seasoned entrepreneurs, subject matter experts, and business leaders respectively, his approaches teach practical ways to quickly close gaps between intentions and measurable outcomes. He is a gifted storyteller and a wicked smart man. He first started participating in our programs almost a decade ago, and the lessons he's learned along the way are both humbling and extremely valuable. Listen as he shares the story of his journey. Here's the interview. Welcome to the Influence Ecology Podcast. Well, thank you, John Patterson. (laughs) I am pleased to be here. I'm pleased that you're here too. God, we've been on a long journey, haven't we? How many years has it been now? A decade. Good God. (laughs) (laughs) Good God. All right. Well, why don't you first introduce yourself and in doing so, tell us a little bit of what you want us to know about your identity. Well, my name is Thomas K.R. Stovall. I am located here in sunny Chicago in uh, February in the middle of winter. What I do for a living, I help subject matter experts to turn their specialized knowledge into passive and automated income online. That is a newer version of my identity. I'm, I'm better known for business optimization and alignment for small businesses uh, usually high six to mid seven figure companies, helping them to add another zero pretty quick and to redesign their companies so that they can wake up every day and enjoy what they do, but also not work quite so hard. Um, <laughs> two wonderful children, two and a half and 10 months old trip and Canon. And a lot of things changed in my, in my life and in my focus in having kids. I'm 39. Oh my goodness. I'm 40 now, John. <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So 40 years old, 
and <laughs> just the the focus shifted on a lot of what I what I was doing prior. So I've got some some fun businesses under my belt. I, I have a patented software company. I speak at enterprises and universities. I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but that's a little bit of background about me. Okay, very good. You have an amazing story about when you first got a call from Kirkland Tibbles. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to to share that story. And for time, I'm sorry, if we had the time, I would say, look, we're, we should just, you know, what we ought to do is we ought to take the story you told at the conference and put it into this podcast it might be a great way to tell the, the full rich story. But what's mm. the shortened version of that story? So the shortened version is I got a phone call from Kirkland after having been introduced to you by someone else. And then you introduced me to Kirkland. And Kirkland had something that he was doing. I didn't know quite what it was, but I had a lot of respect for him because of who I've been introduced by. And uh, we had a phone call and that phone call was full of laughter and joy. And I was right in the middle of losing a few million dollars of real estate, uh, including my primary residence. And uh, I was probably about three weeks from getting foreclosed on and having to move back in with mom and dad at 30. When all of my colleagues and friends were kind of on the corporate ladder becoming young executives, I was in the middle of losing everything. So uh, Kirkland and I had an unexpectedly delightful conversation and we didn't talk any business at all. And I, at least I didn't think we did. And at the end of that conversation, he says, you know, well, Thomas, we didn't really do anything but but kind of laugh on the phone. Let's set up another call so we can actually talk about this thing that I'm doing. I said, Kirkland, that sounds great. And a few days later, the phone rang. I saw the Texas uh, area code and I thought, okay, well, let's let's have another great conversation. I could use some more of that energy. And I picked up and I said, hey, Kirkland, how's it going? And Kirkland says, good. You ready to get started? And I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've had a great week. How about you? And he says, it's been good. Are you ready to get started? And there was a cold chill that came across the phone. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that this was a very different energy than what I'd felt on that first call. And basically, Kirkland uh, unleashed weapons of influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> like nothing I've ever felt. And he he just he, he didn't hold any punches. He just told me, you know, young man, you're you're smart. You're hardworking. I like you a lot. And honestly, I don't know that I've got the the time, the mental bandwidth, the energy mm. to spend with you to get you from where you're at to where you're trying to go. You're incredibly naive. You are going to be incredibly high cost. And I was thinking, who is this guy to be talking to me like this? But <laughs> somehow he had the authority You know, I kind of grasped yeah. him the authority. And then he said something I will never forget. He said, you ever heard of weapons of influence? I said, no. He said, well, there are six of them. Authority, commitment and consistency, liking, reciprocity, scarcity, social proof. They're weapons of language. They're weapons of environment. And they prey on kind of these unconscious triggers that all of us have. Our bodies and brains haven't changed much in thousands of years. And if, if someone is a practitioner of this stuff, you will have a biological reaction to words that they say, the environments they put you in, and you'll think you're saying yes and no to things of your own volition. You're not. You did because they told you to, and you just didn't know it. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some things now, 
and you're going to have a biological reaction. You're not going to be able to defend yourself against it. And Kirkland said some things and my stomach dropped out of my body. And I thought, holy cow, I don't know what this is, but I am a ravenous student of business. I've been an entrepreneur at that time for 11 years. I started my first business out of my dorm room in college. And I'd never heard of whatever he was doing to me. I didn't know what name it was. It wasn't in any book I knew to study. And in that moment, I knew I was wholly unequipped to get where I was trying to go. Mm. And I had to get this thing called influence ecology. Mm. So that's the short version, John. Wow. All right. So when you began to study with us, what did you first come up against? Where did you discover your own naivete or conceit against the background of what we study? I think the first place that I started to to notice my own naivete was just in the fact that this entire body of work was out here and I had no clue. Pages and pages of of documents and books. And I just didn't even know it existed. And so as I began to look at this stuff and immediately not follow the guidelines is what you guys told us was (laughs) the first three months are for learning something. The second three months are for doing something. So don't go and experiment. And of course, (laughs) from day one, I went out and I was trying out accepting people's declines and all types of other stuff. And I found out very quickly that there's a reason why you all say that influence ecology is a is a practice ground to actually try this stuff, because you don't want to just go out into the environment and have your identity at risk, saying things that you don't really know the impact they're going to have on other people. And I agitated a lot of people. Ooh, I um, bet you did. And, and and some of them were inside of the influence ecology offices. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So I'll say that my, my naivete was, was confronted immediately inside of just practicing some of this stuff and seeing how poorly it was going for me and also starting to understand what my identity actually was, the places I was making assertions, assumptions, assessments that were not being accepted at all by the people who I respected most, by people who I needed to be transacting with. And I had no clue how to get from invent to invite, to present, to contract. I could not get to contract. Lots of great relationships and I couldn't move the needle. And that's where I really realized I had no clue what I was doing. You have a a really brilliant arc of a story around identity. As I was reading through your notes, what you discovered about your own naivete, about identity, all the way to building an identity within the tech community. And I'll let you tell a little bit of the story. Can you take us through that arc from realizing that you were naive to identity in the way you just pointed to all the way through to now where you are and the identity that you have produced because it's a it's a brilliant move all the way through that arc. Can you take us through that? Yeah. So I struggled immediately when I was starting my study with the psychology because I was ending a real estate investment career. And up until that point, though I'd been in business for a decade on my own, that was the first business I'd really built of substance. So I, I built it from a $3,000 investment of my savings to a seven-figure investment firm in about 18 months. And that's real cash through my account. So I was really proud. I uh, had amassed something. And then four years later, it was gone. 
And I was starting over when I started this study and without a clue really what identity meant. But it took about two years of consistent work to start to carve out a new identity in technology where people knew what I did. Because uh, the first year and a half, I was testing things and, and trying. I built a, a different kind of software application and uh, it went OK, but it wasn't going to be anything I could kind of grow into a real business. And so it was a couple of years before I started to see this first business called Candid. It's a microfeedback company that I still have. And it was in the feedback and assessment arena for enterprises. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in my map study was that this area called feedback was really a massive breakdown in organizations of all sizes. And nobody noticed how bad everybody is at feedback because everybody's so bad at feedback. And I reached out to an old friend who came out of Tennessee State University Electrical Engineering Department with me. And his company had grown. He also started his first business in college. And his company had grown to be a global software development and consulting firm, mostly doing a lot of project-based work for big companies like Microsoft. But he was itching for his team to do something more entrepreneurial, not just trade hours for dollars. So I had this idea for this enterprise feedback company that would focus exclusively on what I call micro surveys, these one question surveys that crowdsource yeah. feedback in really dynamic ways. And it's an, it was a novel concept. And he said, you know what? I really like this. Let's give it a go. You go out and get the contracts. You give us the architecture for what the thing needs to do. And my team will build it. So that's exactly what we did. We started off 50, 50 and uh, his company got to work building out this half million dollar software product because it wasn't going to be something out of somebody's basement. And I went to work leaning on my relationships and getting some uh, some pre-order, not contracts, but uh, letters of intent from some billion dollar companies. And I thought everything was great. And I had an opportunity to sit down with Eric Schmidt, the chairman of Google. We have a relationship in between us with somebody who we, we both hold very dear. And I have a really trusted relationship with this person. And they set me up with a three hour sit down dinner with Eric Schmidt, a meeting I couldn't pay for in 10 lifetimes. And yeah. the Chicago Cut Steakhouse and the entire purpose of it, just three of us, was for Eric to hear about this business that I call Candid and let me know if it actually had legs. And so he sat and he listened to everything that I told him. And, and uh, the guy who I was working with, 50-50, sat patiently when I was done. He said, this is never going to work. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, the business is great. I've never heard anything quite like it. I think the business actually has legs. The problem is your structure. You don't have any skin in the game and it doesn't matter. I've seen this a million times, no matter what you say, and no matter how many pre-sale letters of intent that you bring to the table, this guy has actual people who he pays actual money that are working day in and day out. And he's seeing these dollars go out with none coming in. And you can't really sell this product to enterprises because you don't have the identity for it yet without it being built. So you're going to start to see a problem in the next month or two as these dollars start to rack up. And he's going to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to need to own this thing. And then your business is going to be dead. So mm -hmm. I didn't argue with him, but I, I politely said, well, Eric, you don't know him like I know him and all of that. <clears throat> and about a week and a half later, I started to hear the rumblings on the other end when I was checking in with my business partner about 
the amount of time and money that mm. his team was spending on this. And I, I, I realized that Eric was right and it was going to go exactly how he said. And I transacted out of that relationship really quickly. It took about a month, but I started the process. I went and raised a little bit of money so that I could pay a portion of the software development, take the the majority of ownership of the company and I could run it and uh, move that company into a minority relationship. And they still built out the software. We're still in good graces today, but the, the business would have been dead had it not been for that. So that was one of those moments where I created that situation. I'm able to now leverage that story as a way to wield identity. So I told that because the next kind of jump point in my identity was now I'm in tech. I've got this software thing that's that's pretty much built, but I'm a real estate guy. You know, I've, I've been in business for a long time. I don't know anything about tech. I'm an engineer, but I can't code a line, John. So I had to figure out what was going to be the fastest way for me to become somebody who was at the front of the room and people wanted to come get to know me versus me trying to take meetings all over the city and get to know people one at a time. I thought about the fact that I've been hosting events since I was 24. It's kind of a natural talent. I love convening people and I can put together a narrative and get butts and seats. So I thought, all right, if I look out out in Chicago, what's going to be the way for me to do this? I, I observed the, the marketplace and there were organizations that were kind of generally focused on tech, but I didn't see a lot of organizations focused specifically on tech entrepreneurship. Everybody wants to teach somebody how to code or hackathons. I didn't want to do that. So that's one area I saw where I could kind of carve a place in the sand. And I also saw that for people of color, specifically in technology, black and Latino, there were no organizations that were standing up above the fray. And I thought, all right, well, if I can create a room that's fun to be in specifically for entrepreneurs and also focuses on people of color and tech, I can own this narrative in Chicago. And so I started with an event called the Founder Series, where we would bring out once a quarter people that were black or Latino that were already kicking butt and taking names in their company. They were from around the country on the cover of Black Enterprise magazine and on Shark Tank. And surprisingly, these folks were willing to come to Chicago, pay their own way for free because they wanted to give back. They were so fearless in the space. They wanted to, to be in a room where they could invest in others. And also there was no spotlight that was being shined on this group. So I used the Instagram channel for it, the or, name of the organization is I'm Black in Tech. So it's mm. very clear, very specific. Literally, I'm Black in Tech. That's who we were. Uh-huh. And the Instagram channel would grow. We just feature founders on the Instagram channel from around the country. And we made it a membership as opposed to other organizations where it was just a general community. I set up a membership application and made people apply. There was no application fee, but the narrative was membership. And we went from getting people apply here in Chicago to getting people applying regionally to nationally, never ran an ad. And ultimately, we ended up with people attending these quarterly events from as far as London. So Mm. They became really popular. Uh, We got sponsored by the largest technology incubator in the country, which is right here in Chicago. It's called 1871. Mm -hmm. And that little organization grew to be in 16 countries. We've got close to 6,000 people in the network. And they've raised and generated close to half a billion dollars in their startups. And now Mm -hmm. I'm a nationally recognized player in the technology space, not just in the black tech space, 
also in the technology space here in Chicago. I speak on civic tech panels. I lead events and I've used events as a way any any type of organization or industry I want to tap into as it relates to tech. I just create a flagship event series, whether it's smart cities or whatever. And I go and own that narrative in the city. And it takes maybe 60 days. It's unbelievable. So I've, I've used those things to build identity really specifically. You're such a great storyteller that there's points to make, but I, but I think they've been made. Uh, <laughs> but, but just in case, I, I think I want to just backtrack a little bit so we can give some good takeaways. First of all, the last thing you said about the duration of time in building an identity you know, you got your call from Kirkland. I had my call from Kirkland. My call from Kirkland was around my identity as well. Hmm. And I was attempting to move into a new space. And what I was attempting to do is after 21 years, I think, in training and development and having produced a really solid identity there, I was moving into television production, television shows, television editing, and things like that. I got a job with a, an editing, editing company that did some some work with NBC Universal. I was working at Chicago at the time called Kirkland. And then he challenged me on my identity to begin to move into the television space, having no identity there hmm. and said this thing to me, I'll never forget, which was, you know, it's going to take you 10 years to produce the kind of identity that you'll require to move powerfully in the television space in Hollywood. 10 years. Now you could produce an identity in a year or two years, but I don't know if it'll be the kind of identity required to meet your financial aims. Mm -hmm. And then he began to move me into a conversation about my financial aims. And, you know, so now I don't work in television. <laughs> I work here, but, but I tell the story just briefly because the, the duration of time to produce the kind of identity that you do acknowledges the importance of identity in moving powerfully in certain environments or certain markets and things like that. What did you learn about producing an identity here and why it matters? Yeah, I can speak really specifically to this. So there's a track that I've worked out in my mind for what it sounds like to go from one identity to a new identity. And it, it is years for it to happen. So it starts out with when you, you, you leave one identity, people, they don't know yet. And so they, when you see them out, hey, how's the, the real estate business going? And oh, I'm, I'm not in real estate anymore. Oh, the market, huh? Okay, well, well, what are you up to now? So they ask, what are you up to? And then you see them out again and they say, hey, how's the real estate thing? Oh, wait, you're not in real estate anymore. What are you doing? So they still don't remember quite what you're doing and you see them out some other time in the future. And then it's, Hey, and they remember you're not in real estate this time, but they have no clue what you're doing. They still don't know. So how's how's everything going? It's just kind of this ambiguous, vague question about your life. And they hope that you're going to say something that gives them any clue about what you might be working on because they don't know. And the next time that they see you out, then it, for me, it sounded like, Hey, so you're, you're doing, uh, you're doing like some feedback thing, right? What, what exactly is it? And so now they're trying to figure out what it is. The next time it's, hey, so how's that feedback thing going? So now they know that you're doing 
the feedback thing, but they don't really know exactly what it is. How's it going? And then at some point down the line, it becomes, hey, how's Candid? And that's mm. when there's a new identity. And after that, shortly for me, I started getting emails and texts and phone calls that sounded like, hey, Thomas, I'm out here at this event. I just met a guy who's trying to do feedback inside of his company. And I thought about you and that journey to go from top of mind for real estate investing to top of mind for this specific feedback thing that I'm doing in software took me to that. It took me about four to five years before I started to get those inbound messages of people, not only knowing what I do, but also seeing that I've been doing it long enough where I'm not jumping around. They know that this is a real thing. It's going to be around next year. Their identity isn't at risk by referring me to somebody four right. to five years. And I'd wager to say if you're, if you're transitioning from one identity to another where you have no, you have no authority at all. I think probably for the best of us, it still is a couple years because even if you've latched onto someone else's identity, they may trust the offer that you're a part of, but they don't trust you yet. So yes. that part has been fascinating for me. And I am really careful about introducing new identities now, even on LinkedIn. Uh, the, the work that I do with subject matter experts, that is yet to become something that I put officially on my LinkedIn until I've got enough evidence of the outcomes I'm producing where when I actually update my my title on LinkedIn, I'm not updating it to say what I'm getting ready to do or what I'm thinking about doing. There's going to be a mile of evidence and social proof that's already there where people will say, why didn't you tell us we were t that you were doing this, Thomas? This is great. I would have sent a million people your way. That's the way I think about identity now. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. Back to where we were, you were talking a little bit about your, you know, the introductions to some naivete. We've talked a little bit about career. I think you saw some other places where you might be naive. You know, I think you said some things about work and money and, and things like that. Anything else you want to cover there? I was 100% naive about big ideas and what it would take to take something from idea to contract to recurrence to the money, you know, just no clue, no clue at all. And looking back on who I was a decade ago and now thinking back on Kirkland's words, I totally understand what he meant when he said, 
you just don't have a clue how high cost it is going to be to get you to where you're at now. I couldn't imagine taking on somebody where I was at that point in my life. I, I just, I can't imagine. And he knew. Kirkland knew. What was he smelling? <laughs> what, what he was smelling was I had the propensity to step out and uh, I'd, I'd speak with a, a certain type of authority, regardless of whether or not the words that I'm saying are, are factual in my mind. If I can see it and, and I feel like there's a pathway to it, I speak about it as truth. It's not something I've, I've worked on doing. It's just kind of how I'm wired. I've, I've actually worked on beginning to speak from a place of, you know, well, here's what I think about that, not here's what it is. And I think what Kirkland saw was that I was willing to basically stand out on the edge of the world and scream from the rooftops about big ideas that I had no grounding in reality to produce the outcomes that I was promising. And while I could get people to sign up and follow me and be excited about that, what he told me on that first call was that someone like him would see someone like me and basically say, boy, go get him, pat me on the shoulder and cross the street and not touch me in a transaction with a 10 foot pole. Those were his words. That's what I think that he smelled on me when we had that first conversation. And it took some time for me to understand fully the cost of standing up, standing out, making claims that I did not know to be true and could not prove to be true prior to having the the evidence there. I was taking on lots and lots of big ideas, big projects, and people would follow me on these things just just based off of charisma and excitement and I had no clue how to actually bring them to fruition. And I thought that was the way you did it. I thought you you come up with this big thing and you, you go and you just figure it out along the way. And on some level, that's what business looks like. But what I saw in influence ecology was that there was a there was a level of basic due diligence that I could do. If you can't see it, you can't say it. If you can't say it, you can't do it. And what that meant to me. When I heard it was, if if I can't write down on paper a clear way from some point A to some measurable point B inside of some clearly defined time frame, it's irresponsible for me to go out and, and scream mm-hmm. from the rooftops about this thing. It's lazy to go out and do that, and it's mm-hmm. harmful to my identity. It's harmful to my relationships. It's harmful to my family. It's harmful to my money. And I stopped doing that. I stopped doing mm. that. And now the identity I've produced as a result is I'm known as, as a process architect. People, people reach out to me when they want to be able to quantify something. You know, when they've got a big idea and they know they need to do better than that. And they say, Thomas, I, I can't quite articulate what it is that I'm trying to produce. And it doesn't matter whether it's, I want to produce this identity. I want to produce more money. I want to produce this outcome in my business. People know me as someone who can help them clearly and quickly articulate how to get from a specific point A, even if they don't know how to say what point A is. We're going to define where you're starting, where you're going, and how to get there. 
and a plan for the mm-hmm. stuff you can't measure along the way, we're going to, we're going to think through as much of it as we can. Then you're going to go quickly. Mm. So that's, the that's really great. I recognize myself in that so much because um, I was of the mind. If you build it, they will come, I guess is one of the ways to say it. There was a little bit of a shadow from the rooftops, believe in it, believe it, get people involved. I, I was a little bit of a Pied Piper throughout my life. And, you know, my sister, one of my sisters will say things like, we all followed you all the time. Whatever you did, we would just follow you. We would just kind of come along. And, and I found that people did that for quite some time. And then people started to not trust my big dreams because I didn't have anything to back them up. That's what it looked like in the early days. Uh, and of course now it looks vastly different than I'm quite trusted and respected. And, and, uh, you just described a bit of my own journey. It's, it's wonderfully said. All right. So I think what I'd love to focus on is you've done a little bit of work now to produce some environments, some groups of people, some organizations. Tell us about where you are now and what you're at work on. So, and feel free to climb up on soapboxes, uh, talk about what matters to you. But what are you working on now? Well, the the place I found myself, this work I'm doing around optimization and alignment, I've, I've focused for a long time on small business owners. And I don't quite know how or where, but the identity that I started producing just seemed to continue to to transfer outward. And I started being brought in by larger companies, you know, Clorox, CDW and enterprises, universities to speak to students and to speak to faculty about my original ideas. I've got a a framework with a name called business amplification that is a really specific way I go about building stuff quickly. And I didn't know I was building a framework many years ago, but that's what it became. And I've now found myself getting getting paid five figures for 90 minutes of my time to stand on stages and talk about my stuff. And it took a while before I was really willing to accept that this is a real identity. It's not something I'm kind of faking at. I know what I know. And I've had to, I spent last year in like a year of no. So starting to recognize every invitation isn't something I ought to pursue and just really figuring out what I wanted to focus my time on. And I spent the first half of 2019 really focusing on beginning to take my group training programs, my masterminds, my challenges, course curriculum that I designed for many years and delivered to small business owners to put those things online so that they could scale. Because I've always kept it my little secret. Didn't want a bunch of people to know. I didn't want a bunch of inbound requests for that kind of work. And I had a client in 2018 who was in a mastermind of mine in Q1. All of 2017, she did uh, 170 grand of revenue. And in 2018, she finished the year at 3 million. And I'm Mm. not going to accept all the responsibility for that, but we track revenue down to the day inside my masterminds. And I know what her upward chart looked like during the time that we were in our, our mastermind. And the best part of that was getting a C under the hood. And she has an online course that trains people how to launch online courses. It's a it's an online business, great business, very focused, very specific. And I've got many courses that map on to every aspect of a small business owner's journey. And I thought, 
this is really robbing my family and robbing the world to not take the time to understand how to take what I've built and put it online so it can scale. So I spent the first half, mm-hmm. half of 2019 really focused on that. And what I discovered was all the pitfalls uh, that, that face a subject matter expert with time and bandwidth for why you wouldn't go about doing that for, you know, you, you got to figure out your learning management system. Is it Kajabi or Teachable or Thinkific or LearnDash or Podia or all this stuff, right? And, and once you pick one, if you do figure out the consideration set, now you're confronted with the fact that you just have a product page. You don't actually have a sales funnel. And I recognize this immediately. Obviously, with the work that we do in Influence Ecology, there was no choreographed experience. There's just a product page. And so then if, if you're not a marketer or a salesperson, then you're confronted with the fact that you don't really write great copy. You don't know necessarily what sh- this should look like. Should there be a video here? Is there some sort of graphic? What should the words say? Is this good? So all of that stuff, I was seeing the breakdowns as I was going through them. I happen to be pretty good at attraction-based marketing and sales. So the copy wasn't the issue, but I did see not having a system as a problem. Yeah. And you get the copy up, you get the page up, no one's buying, and you go out to the marketplace and try to figure out why, oh, somebody says you need a sales funnel. That's what's missing. So you go to click funnels, <laughs> you go to lead pages, all these softwares get response that get you a sales funnel. So now you buy this thing off the off the the rack. And now you're going to spend another $75 a month. Now you're at three figures a month in subscriptions with your learning management system and your sales funnel. And so you, you get a funnel in place now. You're excited. Never mind the fact that you've got this software over here that doesn't integrate with this software over there. The pages look different. Is this branding supposed to be the same? But maybe you're not a marketing or salesperson, so you don't know that the branding actually matters. And this thing is totally <laughs> off. And should the emails come from ClickFunnels or should they come from uh, from your learning management system? You don't know, but you got the thing done now and you're expecting it to rain money. And it does not rain money. It's just going to start <laughs> happening. Right. It's just going to. And you try to figure out why no one's buying and you go out to the marketplace and, oh, well, you're, you're missing traffic. You don't have any traffic and your copy's bad on your funnel. Well, how do I get my copyright first? How do I get the, the funnel to, to be appropriate? <laughs> you need to hire somebody. How much is that going to cost me? A couple grand. It's not much. Now I'm into it for four figures, John. So I've hired somebody now and they're going to do my page and make it look good, make everything the right way. And it still doesn't convert. How come? Well, remember the traffic. If if no one's on the site, doesn't matter how good it is. No one's there to buy. Okay, great. How do I get traffic to the site now? Well, you need Facebook and Instagram ads. Okay. I'm going to go and do Facebook and Instagram ads. How's that work? Well, you need to have some expertise around getting into the ad manager and all that. Why don't you hit some YouTube videos? They'll show you how to do it. And you get in there and now you're going to spend a couple grand and send thousands of people to the site. You got this funnel that's going to convert, except you spend a couple grand. It does not convert. What is going on? Well, you've got traffic, but John, you don't have qualified traffic. Your audiences (laughs) are wrong on your Facebook ads. So now... What do I do to, to adjust that? Well, you, you got to hire a Facebook ads manager. How much is this going to cost? Just 1500 to five grand a month. That doesn't include your ads. And on top of that, they're going to take 15% commission on whatever your ad spend is. But you know what, John? I was into it and I said, well, I'm, if I'm going to hire somebody, I'm getting the five grand a month guy because I want the best. And, and let's just eliminate all the, the issues. 
And a couple months later, you realize that the five grand a month guy is really just throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what sticks, and hopefully you get some traffic. And it's a big waste of time and money. And ultimately, heaven forbid that the traffic actually works out and thousands of people start coming to your website and they actually want what you have, but you don't have a a system in place that actually accounts for the questions they're going to have and the sales calls that they want. So now you've got a hundred emails a day that you need to figure out how to answer. You've got sales calls people want to have to buy your product and a couple people buy maybe 20, maybe 50, but you find out your product is priced wrong. A couple hundred dollars on a product that should be two or three grand. And you've done all of this work. You're into it five figures a year later. And you finally find out that this is only going to make you three or four grand a month. And you can make that in a few hours because you're an expert. Why would you do this? So you shut the whole thing down. And that's how it goes. And what I realized going through the process as I shared how I was moving through it and blueprinting things as I kind of came came across these different hurdles. I just shared what I was going through on social media, and I started having people contacting me inbound and saying, hey, I see you're, you're figuring this thing out. Can you actually help me do this, or can you just do it for me? And I would predictably say, no, I, this is my year of no. I don't want to trade more hours for dollars. And they would say, well, well how much would you, are you sure? You're just not even willing to consider it. I would have to charge you so much. I don't think it would be worth it. Because remember, I'm talking to consultants. I'm talking to people who are employed somewhere, not business owners. So no way they're going to be willing to pay me what I need to make. And ultimately, somebody just kept pressing. And I said, look, I'd have to charge you 20 grand for 30 days. I don't think you want to do that. He said, that's where you're wrong. I do. I'm ready to go right now. And I was shocked. And about a month later, it happened Mm -hmm. again. And I realized I didn't want to do more one-to-one consulting, but there was some sort of offer, some huge breakdown for this ecology of people called subject matter expert that I was not seeing. And when I delved a little bit deeper, what I realized was that if you are already recognized in the space, you're already making six figures or multiple six figures, you're doing well financially, what becomes your biggest resource is your time. You want your time to spend with your family, with your friends, impacting your community, you're 40 plus maybe. And, you know, if, if you're, if you're like me, you realize that you're now middle-aged and the, the clock is beginning to get shorter and you want to have impact and you want to have those memories and the money doesn't, isn't the only thing that matters anymore. So people start to invest in real estate or Forex. They're trying to find ways to make their money work for them and to reclaim their time. But real estate and trading on the stock market and everything, there's still a a measure of risk. And what I didn't know was what I was sharing about my process was this specialized knowledge that we have as experts is actually worth money. It is actually an asset, just like a piece of real estate. And that asset, if repurposed online in the form of a course or a training-focused membership offer or a strategic podcast, can actually produce passive and automated income if you have a system around it. And that's the offer. That's the breakdown that I was solving. And I stopped working on selling my courses online. And I started to zone in specifically on putting together, changing my blueprints for getting a course online into something that's other subject matter experts 
could actually purchase. And it became this thing called Income on Autopilot. It's a framework. And we have five areas for a recognized expert. It's not for people just kind of passionate about something. If you're a recognized expert, then we focus on strategic podcasting, building an online offer so that when you build that that radio station, basically, for your specialized knowledge, you have some place to send people to. We focus on paid speaking from stage so that when you stand up on stage, you don't just do it to market. You do it to make four and five figures and take that halo effect and send people to your online offer to buy. We focus on live events and showing people how to produce profitable live events that continue to build that community, build trust, and ultimately the sales automation tools that wrap around all of these things that make it uh, really easy to step away and let the thing run and produce income on autopilot for you. And for each one of those offers, we have a custom built website that maps along with it. So all of it is just kind of copy paste stuff, copy paste speak, copy paste sell, copy paste promote, copy paste build and copy paste cash for podcasting. So that is the only thing I'm working on. And it's really exciting because I can help way more people who are subject matter experts, but don't necessarily have a business and don't even realize how valuable their intellectual asset is. And they could potentially retire much faster and impact more people, have more fun. And I'm having a blast. That's fantastic. I think we could leave it right there. Is there anything else you want to say? (laughs) First of all, you just did a beautiful job of describing so many people's experience the whole thing is beautiful. Is, is that a speech that you know? It, it a- honestly is. It's just been my personal experience. And when I share it, it's I cannot talk to anyone in my network without them feeling like I've crafted that talk exactly for them. It's just so many of our experience. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a wonderful description of of my experience. And it's an early experience. It was a, it's an experience of probably six or seven mm-hmm. years ago, just sort of the world of an experience that I'm so, I'm so grateful is behind. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I would say that one of the things that that whole journey demonstrates beautifully also is the current and the way that we, hear the current, buy from the current, get lulled by the current, get swept away in the current to this approach and that approach and this thing and that thing. And ultimately, I mean, all of us are just finding our ways, but there certainly is um, some beauty in thinking accurately about our conditions of life, about our work, about our money, about our time, about our identity and moving accordingly. So beautiful. Well, Thomas, is there anything else that you want to if, say? We're about out of time, but I thought I'd ask anything. Else if you anyone say? wants to uh, connect with me, you can do so at thomaskrstovall.com or incomeonautopilot.com. Thank you for having me, John. It's Great. Been a blast. You're welcome. You're absolutely welcome. It's been a blast as well. And we'll include links to all the ways to find Thomas. We'll include in the page on this podcast. Thomas K.R. Stovall, thank you for being here. John. Pleasure. Pleasure's been mine. My special thanks to our guest, Thomas K.R. Stovall. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with him and the links to websites, books, or downloads mentioned in this podcast. The Influence Ecology Podcast is produced by Influence Ecology, LLC in Ventura, California. 
This episode was recorded February 27th of 2020 and was produced by Tyson Crandall and me, John Patterson. You can find a transcript for this and other episodes at influenceecology.com. This episode is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, staff, mentors, and students around the world. Co-founder Kirk Tibbles and our colleagues comprise an international collective of professionals who are active in the development of the philosophy of transactionalism and the discipline of transactional competence. Kirkland is considered a leading philosopher and authority in the field and has authored more than 500 papers on the subject, study, and discipline. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring, entitled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know.